I love this book. You know, ever since I became a Christian at the age of 16, and I've been in love with the contents of this book and the God who gave it to us. I think, though, we, have, we tend to fall into the trap. It's the social media trap, really, of sound bites and little bits of this and a little bit of that. We fall into the trap of a verse here, a verse there, a little bit here, a little bit there, and we, we don't really know the contents of this book well enough. I read that passage in Hosea last week where it says, my people are destroyed through lack of knowledge. And our understanding of the Word of God has is, is got, I think, over the years, less and less and less. Because we spend, our lives are busy, we have lots going on in our lives, and we do not spend the time in this book that we need to. It's a snatch. We grab a bit. We listen to a bit. We catch a sermon here. We get a podcast there. But we don't sit down and really digest the Word of God as much as we need to. And I've, I was challenged last year that we really needed to get into a book study together. And I foolishly thought we'd do Romans until I started to study Romans and realized I'd opened my mouth and it was the biggest task I'd, I'd set myself for a long, long, long time. So for the last few months, I have been studying Romans flat out. I've bought books, I've digested them, I've got into it, and the more I've got into it, the, re- the bigger I've realized the task I set myself. So we have begun our, our series in Romans. The notes are at the back at the, at the info desk. I encourage you to grab those. You can take them home and go over it again. We also go through this in our Connect studies. We're into our second message in the book of Romans. We haven't hit the book yet. We haven't got into the book of Romans because there needs to be some understanding in our lives before we get there. Romans is possibly Paul's greatest letter. But it was written to a people who had a very, very clear understanding of the Old Testament. It was written to a people who are well-versed in what was written there in the Torah, in the first part of the Bible. But today we've let that go. And so we read the book of Romans as, as modern people, and we miss Paul's message because it wasn't written for modern people. It wasn't written for people whose lives revolve around themselves. It was written to a collectivist group of people whose lives revolved around the whole family of God. So Romans has been taken as the book of individual salvation. You know, it's the one that we quote and all of the, 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 the messages we give people to get saved. You know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and so on and so forth. All those wonderful verses from the book of Romans that we apply to individuals are not spoken to individuals. They're spoken to the church. Isn't that a nice noise? Do you think we might take off? It might be the beginning of the rapture. You think, oh. By the time I finished, you might wish there was. <laughs> so much of the message of Romans is based on key Old Testament understandings. And I'm going to assume that at least half of us don't have them. So I'm going to take us through them one by one. Because it's important we are clear about them before we get into the book. Otherwise, we're going to miss what Paul says. It's going to go over our heads and in one ear and out the other. Now, last week, we looked at the first of those in Genesis chapter 1. We're not going to go back to that. 
and read it, but we looked at the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. We read it through. And Genesis begins with the phrase, in the beginning, God. They're the most important four words in the entire Bible. If you do not get the meaning of those four words, you will never get life at all. In the beginning, God. That tells us that, the, that God must be at the center of everything. He must be at the center of our lives. He must be at the center of our churches. He must be at the center of our marriages. In the beginning, God. If God is not put there at the center, there can be no life. Because when God was in the beginning, when in the beginning God was at the center, he spoke and there was life. He spoke and there was light. He spoke and there, was, there were physical things. He, he created us as he was at the beginning. Everything was perfect when in the beginning God was at the center. It's God who creates everything from nothing. It's God who created mankind. We're not the result of a mistake. You might think you were a mistake, but you are not the result of a mistake. God called you into being. We are not the result of an evolutionary process. Scientists might tell us that, but they're wrong. We are the result of God's design. All that we see is the result of God's design. I remember when I was doing science at college, and of course you do evolution, that's part of the deal. And I remember sitting there listening to this stuff and I'd just become a Christian and I'd, I'd, begun, I'd begun to understand that it was God who created us. And I couldn't marry the two. How can, how can, how can this, this creation, which is so intricate and so obviously a design, just happen? It's as stupid as taking the bits of a watch and putting them in a bucket and shaking that bucket around and then hoping a watch will come out. It's not going to happen. And yet to think that this world, all we see, just happened because there was a big explosion one day and it all came together is just dumb. Genesis 1 tells us that there was a designer, a creator. It does not tell us how he did it. It tells us he did do it. Science worries about the how. The Bible tells you who. In the beginning, God. And God created everything we see he created us and he intentionally created us for one purpose and that was intimacy with him human beings were created for intimacy with God Romans eleven thirty six 36 says for from him and through him and to him are all things God is at the center and if God is relegated to any other place either in our lives or in our circumstances or in our churches or in our world, then things no longer work well. And we'll see the world that we're in now. Things don't work well. Why? Because God is not at the center. When God is at the center, things work well. When God is at the center of your marriage, a broken, busted marriage can work well when God is put at the center. You know, um, people falsely or have the false understanding that just because you're Christians, things are going to go well. Oh, Christians shouldn't have bad marriages. Anyone can have a bad marriage if God is not at the center. But I tell you what, if God is at the center, it's impossible to have a bad marriage. 
because he won't let you get away with monkey business. He won't let me get away with being a selfish husband if he's at the centre. He nails me. And says, cut it out. Stop talking like that. Stop acting like that. He tells me off when he's at the centre. When he's no longer at the centre, I'm not listening anymore and I get to do what I like and then things fall apart. God at the centre, things go well. All right, that was Genesis 1. So in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, we see a world created perfect, not like the world we're in now. We see man as being the ultimate of God's creation. We see God at the center, and we have paradise. But the rest of the Bible doesn't show paradise. Why? Because there's Genesis 3, and that's where we're going today. My task in half an hour is to do Genesis 3. It's impossible, but I'm going to try. I want to read you a little bit of the story in Genesis, starting at chapter 2, verse 9. And I want you to follow with me. Don't read it out loud with me. It'll probably, if Aaron can keep up with me, be on the screen. But turn to it if you can. I'm reading from the New International Version, Genesis 2, verse 9. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're going to flick over to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. We're going to stop there. That's the background of Genesis 3. It's important we understand what's going on here to get the story of Genesis 3 clearly. What we need to see in this story is that God gives everything to them. God is keeping nothing back. He, is, he wants them to be happy. He puts them in the middle of the garden and he says, it's all there for you to enjoy. Love it, enjoy it, have a ball, have a party. I've done it for you. I've given it for you to rule over. But what about verse 17? He puts one restriction on them. There's two trees at the center, and he says, he doesn't say anything about the first one. He just says, don't touch the second one. Don't eat from the second one. didn't say don't touch. He said, don't eat. Now, why, why did he say that? Why did he single out that one tree? Why did he even put it there? Why did he say, don't do it? It's God being a meanie. You know, often that's our understanding of God, isn't it? He, he's, he's thus there to, to spoil my life, just to be mean, just to stop me doing the things I want to do. I could have so much fun if it wasn't for him. <laughs> Why did God say to them, don't eat from that tree? The simple matter is they weren't ready for it yet. They needed the perspective of the tree of life first. And if they ate from the tree of life, they wouldn't need the other one. Everything they longed for would be there. It's a bit like a five-year-old saying to Dad, Dad, can I drive the car? Now, if your five-year-old says, Mom, Dad, can I drive the car? What are you going to say? No. Or you'll put them on your knee and you'll pretend to drive with them. 
But you'd never, ever, ever give them the keys and say, okay, go for it, my, my child. Have a ball. You know, just do whatever you like. Donuts, wheelies, you take it off the cliff. Do what you like with it. Yours, you don't do that. Why? They're not old enough. They're not mature enough. They're not ready. There will come a day in their lives when you give them the keys in a managed fashion and you teach them to drive and eventually you let them take the car out by themselves. That day is going to come, but it's not yet. They are not ready for it. Same situation here in the Garden of Eden. God was not saying, I'm keeping something from you. He's just saying, you're not ready for it yet. There's a process here, and this is part of the process. What right has God to do that? He's God, for goodness sake. He can do what he likes. <laughs> See, God's plan for Adam and Eve wasn't for evil. It was for good. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts I have for you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil to give you a future and a hope. We need to understand that about God. God is interested in our best. If he ever says no, it's because there's something better. He's not a meanie. Get that into your head. God is not a meanie. He loves you. He wants the best for you. He wanted the best for Adam and Eve. He knows what works. He knows what doesn't. I went, took my little grandson out to water his dad's garden when we were up in Auckland. And I, and I, was, I was holding the hose, you know, and Jackson said, I want to hold the hose. So I give him the hose. You know where the water goes, don't you? Yeah, you got it. <laughs> up, round. I said, oh, Jackson, we, we put it there. He got really upset that I wanted to put the water where it's supposed to go. He wanted to put it on me. He wanted to put it up in the sky. He wanted it everywhere else. So we had a little discussion that we're actually watering the garden. We're not watering granddad. And we ended up with a tantrum. But you see, there are, when we're, Kids and adults, the adult generally knows best in those sort of, knows what's, you know, going across the road. The adult knows you look both sides and you wait, and then you go at the right time. You don't just charge out, right? Kids don't think about that sort of thing. Little kids don't. They just want to get across the road. God knows what's best for us. We've got to get that well and truly into our minds. He knows the best way to find life and to find fulfillment. And the same with Adam and Eve. This is where the setting the story up. Let's go to Genesis 3 now. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you'll die. She got that a little bit wrong, which was a bit of a problem. Verse 4, You will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord called out to the man, Adam, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman, <laughs> the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. It's her fault, God, not mine. Husbands have been saying that ever since, eh? Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? She turned to the serpent, it's his fault, he did it, not me. The serpent deceived me, I ate, she said. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, and he brings judgment upon the serpent. And then he says to the woman in verse 16, I'll greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he'll rule over you. By the way, that is not God saying that's the right thing to do. He's just saying now the order has gone all wrong, and this is what's going to happen because things have gone wrong. Do you get that? That has been so badly read. That is not God saying, this is what I want to happen. This is saying, now you have mucked it up. This is what's going to happen. Huh? Okay, we'll leave that. Let's just let you think about that for a little bit. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you'll, toil, you'll eat of it. All the days of your life, it'll produce thorns and thistles and pumpkins for you. And, <laughs> and you'll eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And verse 24, we'll finish with this. After he'd driven the man out of the Garden of Eden. He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So the tree that they were allowed to have, they could no longer have because they had fallen. Do you know that's the greatest gift of grace that has ever been? Do you know what would have happened if they'd eaten the tree of life after that? We would be unredeemable they would eternally live in the form they had become. God kept them from the tree of life so that they could be redeemed. All right, now let's move on. What's happening here? There's so much. I could go for hours, but we're not going to. What's happening here is the devil, in the form of the serpent, is tempting them to dethrone God. In Genesis 1, we find in the beginning God. God is at the center. The devil is coming to them and saying, you don't need God at the center. You can do it yourselves. You don't need him. You can get what you want your own way. You don't have to go God's way. And we look at verse 1, he says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals, and he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? Did God really say that? What is this? What is happening in this little encounter? The first thing that's happening is the devil is challenging God's righteousness. Now we understand that word righteousness all wrong. 
If I went round this room and asked you what righteousness meant, I bet you'd come up with words like holiness and being good and nice and everything great and, and perfect, wouldn't you? That's what you think righteousness means? Wrong. Straight away, you understand righteousness like that, and you will not get Romans at all. It's not what Paul's talking about. And we've been taught, you know, righteousness is imputed to us. So when I become a Christian, I become righteous. And then I discover I'm not. I'm still horrible. Have you discovered that? I can still lie and cheat and gossip. Oh, so what does this word righteousness mean? It means being in the right. In the Old Testament, righteousness is not so much a moral word, it's a legal word. It's the word the judge uses at the end of a court case when the person is found not guilty. He says they are now in the right. It doesn't mean they are a perfect person. It doesn't mean they will never do anything wrong again. It just means I find them in the right. That's my decree. You cannot speak against them anymore in this matter. I have decided. Legally declared to be in the right. What the devil is doing is saying, God's not in the right. What he's saying is not right here. It's a challenge to God's being in the right. It's taking God from being at the center, taking him from his right to lead and to rule and to set boundaries, taking him from being Lord and King and saying, remove him from that position. You need to be there. You need to make the decisions. God's not always right. I know a lot of Christians who think that way. God's in the right if he agrees with me. As soon as he says something I don't agree with, he's not in the right anymore. I know more. I know better. <laughs> the first foundation of sin is thinking that God has no right to tell me what to do. God has no right to tell me what to do. It's independence. It's that little, little evil monkey that's inside all of us that when your parents tell you to do something, says, nah. It's that little thing that's in all of you, all of us that sees a sign on the door that says, keep out. And what do you want to do? Go in. Private. Oh, I wonder what's private. <laughs> or am I the only wicked one here? Don't tell me what to do. Independence. Got a photo of my grandson walking at the zoo. He's only one and a bit. When, as soon as he could walk, and he's at. That little rooster. Did God really say? Has God really got the right to tell you what to do? Has he really got the right to be at the center of your life? Really? That's the first 
foundation of sin. Sin is not being naughty. Sin is not seeing God as in the right, not putting God at the center. It's living independently from Him. Verse 5, second thing that comes out in chapter 3. You won't die, the serpent said to the woman, verse 4. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You won't die. God's telling you a fib. He's just manipulating you. He's just not, not telling you all the truth. You won't die. Go on. Have a bite. It's not really the way God says, you know. That's a challenge to the truth of God's word. The second root of sin is that this is not the truth. This is just just words, you know. You won't die. God didn't really mean that, you know. It's, not, it's a subtle, subtle play on the words. What he really meant was this. It won't happen the way God said. You see, the second foundation of sin is thinking that God's word is not reliable. It doesn't apply to me today. Oh, it's 2,000 years old or older. I'm a modern person. You know, it doesn't, doesn't apply to me. It might apply to you, but it doesn't apply to me. I know better. With those two foundations in their hearts, the power of humanism took over. Look at verse 6. I just closed my Bible. That was clever. Verse 6 of chapter 3. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. These words aren't there just by accident. There's three things happening there. Good for food. The flesh. The five senses. Suddenly, that becomes important. What I see, what I smell, what I touch. Mankind now became ruled by those things rather than those things being there for their own, for their pleasure and for the good things. She's swayed by the power of the flesh. It's good for food. It's pleasing to the eye. The desires now begin to, to take over. Oh, I want that. Oh, I want that. Oh, I want that. And desirable for gaining wisdom, the intellect starts to take over. We see the whole root of humanism in this passage. What I feel, what I, what I want, and what I believe, what I know, my intellect... See, the real temptation here is to find fulfillment independently of God. To remove God from his place of lordship at the center and to put ourselves at the center. What I want, my cravings of my flesh, what I desire, and what I think. God is now substituted by those three things. And if you look at our world today, that's just basically it. There's no right or wrong, it's just what you think. What's, what's right? Well, if you think it's right, it's right. If you think it's right to be a woman, to be a man and compete against women, it's right. 
Oh, I'm getting onto some touchy stuff. It's wrong! Because God said it's wrong. See, see we, our, our thinking has been warped and twisted. And now you go to school and you're taught that things that are wrong are right. And it's okay to do this. And oh, you're a girl and you, you actually like another girl. You're a lesbian. No, you're not. You just like another girl. Girls have always liked other girls. You know, they've always walked with their own. Guys don't do that. But girls have always done that, hand in hand, arm in arm. Now, oh, it's, it's sexual attraction. No, it's not. Goodness sake. <laughs> I've been asked to preach more X-rated sermons. You're going to get some. Yet we have got so PC. Oh, you can't say you can't say this and you can't say that because because that's not the way people think. It's not the way people think that matters. It's what God says that matters. And we've got to know what God says. If you don't know what God says, you're going to be pushed along in this Adam and Eve thing. Oh, it's good to look at. Oh, I feel like it. Oh, my brain thinks it's a great idea. Well, if God thinks it's a bad idea, it's a bad idea. Period. Over. Done. Dusted. Got the t-shirt. Let's go on. So Adam and Eve. Now, this is, this, is, this is the sad part of it, and this is what we don't understand. Once again, our minds have been twisted by society. Adam and Eve, from that moment on, were permanently changed. From that moment on, they were ruled by the cravings of the flesh, by human desire, and human wisdom and intellect. From that moment on, that became their God. And in verse 7, to their horror, they discovered God was right. Too late. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. There's nothing wrong with being naked. But suddenly they felt it was wrong. Because suddenly they were distorted. I'm not encouraging all to go naked. You did not hear me say that. To their horror, they immediately discovered God was right and the devil was lying. If they'd only listened to God in the first place, if they'd only trusted in him enough to see that he only wanted the best for them, if they'd only done things God's way. And what's the result? If you read, and we haven't got time, but if you read Genesis from now on, you'll see these words repeated over and over. And he died. And he died. And he died. So-and-so lived so many years, and he died. And so-and-so lived so many years, and he died. And he died. That's not just a fluke that those words are repeated. God's making a point here. I told you so. I told you I was right, but you wouldn't listen. <laughs> but the sad part of it is this. The rest of the Old Testament story shows the result of this action. Mankind becomes broken. 
Paradise is lost. Intimacy with God is broken. They hide from God in the garden. They don't want to see him anymore. They're afraid of the one who loved them and loves them. Intimacy with God was broken. And they introduced sin into their DNA. Which means it was passed on father to son to son to child to mother to daughter to son to on and on they passed on brokenness you and I were born broken I don't like that word depraved total depravity it's, we were born broken we were born broken with a, with a potential for brokenness in us because Adam and Eve went this way don't tell me what to do God I'll do it my way and as a result mankind was broken we need to look at mankind that way mankind is broken there's no hope for this world none in ourselves we can't fix ourselves earth has become impregnated with hell you know I often hear non-Christians say oh if God was a God of love there wouldn't be all these wars who creates wars we do Oh, there wouldn't be incest. Who does incest? People do. Oh, there wouldn't be abuse. Who abuses? People do. It's not God. God spoke to them at the beginning and said, go my way. He said, no, we'll go our way. The result is the stuff. (laughs) And to cap it all off, we can't fix ourselves because we're all broken. It's like a broken watch trying to fix a broken watch. doesn't work. You need something fixed to fix something broken. But we're all broken. Here's the Bible story. The condition requires somebody else to fix it. And out of this, all manner of horrible behaviors appear on earth. Read the Old Testament. It's disgusting. Hmm? Honestly, it's disgusting. And it starts very, very soon after this. Cain kills his brother Abel. Very soon. The real problem, though, isn't the outward behavior. The real problem is the sin on the inside. It's the I'll do it my way on the inside. It's a hereditary inclination to live independently of God. All we are and all we experience on this earth today is the result of this incident hatred murder lying cheating abuse fear loneliness if I haven't hit anything you've been hit with yet I'll get there sickness pain suffering sexual immorality homosexuality incest rape where do they come from from man going his own way The problem is not those things. The problem is in us. You don't fix those things by laws. You don't don't create a new law to fix that. You don't fix those things by saying you can't do it. You don't fix those things by saying I'll put you in jail if you do do it. They just do it in jail. You don't fix those things by, by creating programs to teach people to be nice people. You can't teach broken things to be whole. You can't take them into therapy. 
and therapize them into wholeness. I'm not against counseling. But without the cross, it's powerless. There's no quick fix. There's no therapy to cure the illness. We're in a mess, aren't we? We need to understand what a mess we're in. We need to understand what a mess non-Christians are in. What a mess we Christians are in. We need to understand what the mess really is so that we can understand the cure properly. We don't make full use of the cure because we don't understand the sickness. And it's not, it's not a sickness that'll just get better if I just put it into a nicer environment. It's going to be there forever unless something breaks into it that is whole and beautiful and pure and fixes it. Next time we're going to see God breaking into the mess and starting to fix it. But we need to understand the mess properly. So the Bible story from now on, the rest of these pages, you've got the first three? Well, the rest of these pages are fixing the mess. And it's such a big mess, it takes a long time to fix. You know, why doesn't God just go, Kishazam, and it all just get fixed? Have you tried sorting something out in your own life? You know, your own brokenness, okay? You, you've, got a, you've got an issue of the heart, and God puts his finger on it and says, I want to heal that. How long does that take? Hmm? Now multiply that by the whole of humanity. Hmm. Doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. And the Old Testament and the New Testament show us the process. Before we understand the process, we've got to understand what you can't do. Because we like doing things our own way, you see. So we just try and do it our own way again. God says, look, it won't work. I'll prove it to you. We're going to get to there. So the Bible story is God gradually putting things to right. Remember, righteousness is being in the right. God wants us in the right, not in the wrong. How is he going to do that? Come next week, because that's what we're going to look at. But what we need to understand, hey, I did this in half an hour. It's all right, eh? What we need to understand is that what we see around us, what you see in your life, is not God's fault. Politicians can't fix it. Jacinda Ardern will definitely not fix it. And neither will Simon Bridges. Trying hard can't fix it. Laws and regulations can't fix it. The problem's in us. The problem's not your wife, or your husband, or your father, or your mother. The problem's you and me. We're all infected with a deadly virus. It's called sin. And it's not being naughty. Being naughty is the result of sin. Sin is living independently from God. It's that little monkey that says, I know better than you know. 
I don't know whether you had a monkey like this. I bought one for our kids when I was over overseas. And I saw this thing. I thought, oh, man, I've got to have this thing. And it was this ugliest monkey you ever had, saw. And it was quite big, and it had symbols. And you switch it on, and it go, And when you hit it on the head, it went, That's really a picture of us. We're all nice, but when you hit us on the head, it's the inner comes out. A bit like the mountain biker the other day. What's inside comes out when you're squeezed. And then you regret it after. Well, where did that come from? It was there all the time. <laughs> it's an internal urge to do it our way. Cut God out of the picture, do it ourselves. And you know what? Even as Christians, we can do that. You can put God at the center and then take him out again. So easy. For life to go well, God's got to be at the center. So my question is, how about us? You know, that was a sort of a knowledgey sort of thing, a little teaching there, but where are we at? Are we putting God at the center of our lives every day? You know, we always have those two trees in our garden. Will we do it God's way or our way? You know, I, I, lots of situations I'll come to, and there's always a couple of trees there. There's what I want, and there's what I know God wants. Which tree will I eat from? I get that choice every day of my life. My wife annoys me. Will I react the way I want to react? Or will I react the way God wants me to react? I feel like reacting like this. I really want to act like this. She deserves me to act like this. And God says, is that really the way you should react? Two trees, always there. I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, but I have the choice every day. God first or me first? Hmm? Let's stand together. We're through, we're done, we're dusted, going home. Father, I just pray that as we go from this building today, we would understand fully and completely your place in our lives. Lord, that all of us would have that desire to put you first. No matter what we desire, no matter what we see, no matter what we think, that we would always come back to what you say. It is written. It is written. My God says, not my will, but yours be done. Father, as a congregation, we give ourselves and our lives and our thinking and our desires and our wants and our feelings to you. And we pray that you would rule in the midst of all of that mess. That we would be in the right. That the brokenness would be put together. That the mess would be sorted out and that our lives would become more and more and more in the center of your will. We ask that in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.